0: Just how does one successfully re-platform? What is headless? And why should we all be thinking about marketplaces?
1: It's the e-commerce master plan podcast. Here to help you solve your marketing problems and grow your e-commerce business. Cutting through the hype to bring you inspiration and advice from the e-commerce sector and beyond. Here's your host, Chloe Thomas.
0: Hello, welcome. It's another episode of our 2022 January growth series. If you are tuning in for the first time or the first time in a while, hello and welcome back. It's excellent to be chatting to you. Here on the eCommerce Master Plan podcast, we bring you inspiring stories and examples of retailers and brands who are striving for e-commerce success and doing interesting things on the path to net zero. Every January, we release our January growth series to help you pull together your perfect plan for 2022. We've some super inspiring guests coming up for you throughout these nine episodes, and to be honest, for the rest of the year, um, including our hugely popular mashup episodes where a flock of e-commerce experts each share their bite-sized top tips. In this episode, we're tackling a topic that can make or break your plans, your tech stack, your website. My guest is going to be sharing the highs and lows of his recent journey through replatforming the Grenson even shoes business. Get ready to learn a lot from Ash as soon as we've heard from our sponsors. Recharge is the leading subscription management solution helping e-commerce merchants of all sizes launch and scale subscription offerings. The subscription market is predicted to grow to nearly $500 billion, that's billion with a B, by 2025. As the fastest growing area in commerce, subscriptions hold tremendous opportunities to build a community of customers who share your values. Recharge powers the growth of thousands of subscription merchants and their communities, turning one-time transactions into long-term customers. Customer relationships With subscriptions, merchants are able to experience predictable revenue, increased customer loyalty, and higher average order values. Whether you're a direct-to-consumer business or an omnichannel brand, subscriptions strengthen your brand's relationship with your customers and make it easy for consumers to make repeat purchases. Turn transactions into relationships and experience seamless subscription commerce with Recharge. Get started today with the subscription payment solution trusted by over 45 million subscribers subscribers worldwide. Check them out at rechargepayments.com forward slash masterplan. And now to introduce today's special guest. Ash Hubbard is in charge of e-commerce at Grenson Shoes, a heritage British brand with a young heart. The business was founded over 150 years ago, and as well as the D2C website, they wholesale to top online and offline department stores such as Mr. Porter, Matches Fashion, and Selfridges. They also have their own physical stores across London. Hello, Ash. Hello, it's great to have you here. Um, how did you get into e-commerce?
2: <laughs> Probably the most one of the most convoluted ways ever, really. Um, so, left school at 16. I'm, I'm a University of lifer, as they say. Um, basically, had dreams of being in the music industry and worked in record shops and DJing, et cetera. Got to the early 20s and thought, oh, man, I need a real job. So, um, <laughs> so I actually started working for a software business in the early 2000s which predominantly supplied systems to universities and conference centers around the world and and obviously the the next logical sort of step in their development was Building web front ends to all these systems, so that delegates could register and students could apply for their accommodation online, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So I got involved with that that side of things from support, moving through into implementation and project management, and and sort of taught myself really front end development to a point, and and worked there for seven eight years, I think, in the end, and ended up. Managing the the front end design team, so a group of designers and, and developers who specialised in the in the UI and UX work for all of the our customers around the world, universities, conference centres everywhere. Um, and I got to the got to the stage where I started to think, really, to make the next step in this digital industry that I've kind of fallen into and love, I think you need to be client side. I don't think the agency slash supplier side really gets the recognition that often when you see whenever you see big events in the industry new sites going live or stuff like that the the actual people that built it don't really get the mention it's the it's the strategists if you like and the people that own the the channel so i was lucky enough that i live local to um a role that came up which was Pretty much perfect for anyone who wants to work in digital. So at the time, the company was called the Luminar Group. They uh, owned and operated 60 nightclubs and bars across the UK. And when I say that, people think, "Oh, that's a bit of a sort of seedy, strange <laughs> business, isn't it?" Really, but people forget that there's a massive corporate machine running governance and health and safety and and everything behind that sort of commercial nightclub model. And, and Luminar was turning over well over 100 million a year. So it wasn't a, a small business. And the reason why I say it's a, a goldmine for anyone into digital really is the customer demographic was 18 to 24-year-olds. So, wow. you know, if you want to trial anything with a digitally native audience, there isn't probably a better sweet spot really. It was great because I had lots of um, – ideas that I wanted to put into practice I had a very good manager who wanted to push these ideas and leverage them we had budgets which is the key thing really (laughs) Um, and and we we broke a few first really we had in-app ordering in all the venues uh, for iOS and Android so you could browse the drinks and menus etc and order and then Few minutes later, you just get an alert, and you can go and pick up your drinks paid from the bar instead of queuing five or six people deep. So we rolled that out. We had sixty venues, like I said, across around eight or nine brands. So I managed all of the um, the, the e-commerce platform for those. So all the ticket sales and advance and, and bookings, etc., were all handled online, which uh, was quite quite a challenge. But a great, again, a great thing for the CV. A great learning curve, really, managing that those many different brands on a single platform and the intricacies of multi-site multi-brand all these sort of challenges that that come along with is a a great baptism of fire and um yeah it was was a good experience we we almost doubled revenue in my time there um through through telesales systems as well and we, we 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 implemented big data and, and a customer single customer view platform. And, and again, a brilliant playground for anyone to digital because you had so many data sources. We had like Wi-Fi logins, um, door security scanners, scanning ID. We had website logins. We had app logins. We had people using the TILs, mailing list signups, data points everywhere to, to put even the Facebook logins. We were at the time, um, the Facebook permissions were a bit, bit more open. So when people logged into our apps, with Facebook, we were able to store their music likes, and then start to take that data and look across the estate and see which artists were bubbling up from our customer base to drive talent bookings in venue, and start to look at who should we be booking as DJs or performers, and even brands they're into, clothing brands. Where's their similarities between um, certain brands and trends, and what can we look at and start to to mold our marketing in? So it was, yeah, it was amazing, basically.
0: Certainly, Ash, listening to that, my brain is going, whoa, that's so much more complex than e-commerce, but a form of e-commerce too.
2: Yeah, definitely. It's just intangible goods. It was tickets. It wasn't, um, we weren't delivering a box product. We were delivering digital PDFs, basically, for, for a price.
0: And all that experience working with the complex tech stack that you had um, at Luminaire with the nightclubs and building tech stacks, essentially, in the job before, I guess makes you very well positioned to do a big e-commerce replatforming project.
2: I'd hope so. (laughs) Or does it
0: make you more frustrated than the average e-commerce manager director head of um, as the process rolls along?
2: I think it probably frustrates our agency partners more when they see the size of the spec I've given them with fully documented XML schemas for APIs and JSON REST paths and data models and everything like that. But yeah, it it does um it does get frustrating sometimes when you know how quick changes can be done. But obviously when a third party's got to work on them they, they've they've got other priorities and other customers. And whilst you can the left side of your brain tells you that the right side of the brain is like, come on, just hurry up and do it. You know, where's <laughs> my work. But um,
0: So Ash, the replatforming project you've just been through for Grenson, why was the decision made to do it? Because I think that's one of the hardest things a business has to work out is when the right time is to shift.
2: Our hand was purely forced by expiring tech, really. Uh, we were Magento One users, so we probably chanced our arm to be fair and, and left it as long as we could to make the decision. Um, but yeah, it was a, it, it was a tough one to make because we were actually happy with, with things the way they were. We had frustrations, but the replatforming also drove quite a lot of maybe unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. For example, our agency supplier that we had a relationship with, with Magento was an Adobe partner. So it meant that if we didn't stay with Magento, we had to almost throw the baby out with the bathwater because it meant getting a new the systems implementer to come and uh, come and build anything else that wasn't Magento, which was a, a difficult decision to have to make because you're kind of stepping into the unknown with maybe a new platform and the unknown with a new agency whilst trying to keep a business running through probably the most difficult period since, I don't know when, since World War II probably, um, in terms of global uh, turmoil. So yeah, I guess if we can survive that and re-platform, we can do anything really.
0: And you mentioned you, you were with an Adobe partner on the M1 platform. How did you come about deciding to to leave the Magento ecosystem or the Adobe ecosystem?
2: harping back to my roots really. Uh, obviously, like I said in the start, a lot of my early experiences with the public sector and university so I ran quite a big tender to be honest and I went into lots and lots of detail around tech within that tender and not just the business requirements but really trying to understand the nitty gritty of the offerings I think we we invited all of the majors you know Shopify Magento uh, big commerce were a bit of a late entry and some more bespoke smaller platforms and as we started getting the results back from some agency partners and actually the the software vendors themselves it quickly became a two-horse race with big commerce and, and magento mainly because of our multi-currency multi-site requirements mm-hmm. and erp integration needs etc so it ruled out some of the smaller platforms or those that would required lots of different individual sites to be able to deliver multi-site functionality which was shopify at the time as well unfortunately so that's where that, that came to a close for us but um in all honesty, we got to the end of the, the uh, tender and there was almost a like for like with Big Commerce and Magento. And what really pushed us over the edge, I think was, and, and I still actually think we made the right decision even if it's what happens today, is Magento feels like it's being shoehorned into a cloud-based application Big Commerce felt like it's built to be a cloud-based application as a SaaS model, mm-hmm. and we're a fashion brand. We don't want to be managing servers and web hosting environments and becoming PCI compliant at a, a data warehouse level, really. So, Big Commerce sounded like the best opportunity for us at the time, and mm-hmm. we're live with them since August. So, I guess that that tells the rest of the story, really.
0: <laughs> and um, I guess having gone through, I mean. I'm a I'm a fan of a of a detailed tender doc um myself. I've created several over the years, but they won't have been anywhere near as detailed as the one one you put together. So any tip, you know, simply because of your background. So how crucial do you think putting the right inputs into the process was to getting an accurate outcome at the end?
2: For me personally, I think massive because if you want to prevent scope creep and change in any project, you've got to clear um, your requirements and your needs up front as detailed as possible, really. And we've all been there, we've all we've all bought products and, and worked in projects at at certain levels where all of a sudden you get three weeks in and you realise one of your requirements isn't possible. And there's a mad panic from everyone to look at workarounds and how we can achieve the end result. And, I'd be lying. I think most people would be lying if they said they haven't been there working with software, really. Um, Would
0: would you like to know my worst one?
2: (laughs) Go on, yeah, because it means I don't have to say any of mine. Yeah, yeah.
0: I'm happy (laughs) to share this with everybody. I was working on a book Website. I was hired to project manage from the client's perspective, a new build of a website in the book sector. And the book sector, for anyone who's in it, is a nightmare because you've got about 8 million. At that point, there was about 8 million products because you take the data feed from the big warehouses and you then have all these books. Then you have to find a way of trying to create an attractive website with this minging database basically um, to try and pull into it and there are specialists in how to deal with book data and obviously it really slows down a website and all the rest of it but the client decided not to go with the specialists which was very frustrating and to go with someone else now there were key parts of this spec was one the client's stationary products were to be sold so there was an element of product that were manually set up by the client and fed out of their warehouse there were the physical books that we were selling as per the massive database and there were eBooks that people could download. And throughout the build press, we how are we doing on the eBooks? We went, oh, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. How are we doing on the eBooks project? Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. We got to it two weeks before live and I went, and, and can we see the eBooks interface? What eBooks interface? Yeah. And it was like a totally new database. And we knew how difficult it had been to do the first one. And yeah, that was, um, yeah.
2: Yeah, I can yeah. imagine. A few late nights after that.
0: For them, more than for me. Um, <laughs>
2: well, that's, again, the beauty of being client-side and not agency-side, isn't it, really?
0: Yeah, one one thing I will never own is a web agency. No. Oh, anyway, we digress massively, <laughs> yeah. Ash. Um, so so clearly putting the right inputs at the beginning is crucial to doing this and mm-hmm. properly assessing what you need. How How far into the future for your needs were you looking as you put together that tender? Was it a here's what we need right now? Was it here's what we think we need in a year's time? Is it this is what we can see happening in five years' time?
2: The, the honest answer is I didn't really have a time scale on it. I just tried to plan for things to be as open and interconnected as possible because the big decision we had was headless or managed front end, if you like. And um, again, it goes back to what I said earlier, headless in theory sounds lovely and it's it's a great thing to talk about if you've got an in-house resource to manage but unless you've got a pretty structured tech team it's basically a bespoke website it, it you know there's there's content uh, management systems that can handle the, the the headless side of things but you're going down a road that is very expensive to maintain potentially so we wanted to look at a how we could achieve strong brand creative And the ability to change layouts and and add different styles of brand creative in terms of front end, as well as making sure that we're not limited by interconnectivity through the API layers so that in essence, we can just build and build and build and build basically from... The day one requirements of you know finance system integrations, ERP integrations, stock integrations, pricing integrations, um, taxation system, all the sort of standard text that on site search, everything that's that's uh, a third party really. But even even in the time that we started that project and we signed on the dotted line, I think late twenty nineteen to to choose our our vendor industry's changed massively already we've gone through covid Mm -hmm. and the high streets in essence taken a massive knock and and retail as a whole is is shifted and within that i'm just so glad that we've got the connectability that we have and the ability to service data through the channels that we have because it almost has weatherproofed us through that storm
0: so, have you ended up headless or non-headless?
2: No, not headless. Not no. headless. So, the be- one of the beauties of big commerce really is they have a um, language. Well, they don't. It's not theirs. They utilise the, uh, the the handlebars logic, the JavaScript sort of handlebars framework, and um, through that you can basically build your own templates and build logic into the templates. But realistically, um, we still sort of treat it like a like you would manage a headless thing. So the theme isn't just some skin and styling on the website it's almost an application in its own right so we've built custom middleware using Laravel and that handles the transformation of data between third party systems and brings them into a common format for big commerce to be able to ingest and export etc but then a- along with that it can also act as um, a-, a proxy service if you like as a middleman so that when you 've got third-party elements that, that utilize APIs in the front end, and you don't want to obviously be just including them in the page. So you're showing your username and password to all and sundry who view your site. We, we route those sorts of requests through the middleware from anything from contact forms and, and Google recapture validation through to um, some of our DHL return services and how we use their um, XML feeds for creating returns and return requests and stuff like that. So we kind of went into it with a headless mindset but using a a managed front end um which i think it was actually opens up a lot of opportunity because you're not having to go down that full bespoke route of of with headless Mm. you've got so many implications on speed and performance and security before you've even designed or thought about customer experience because you've just
0: it it makes me think a little bit like you said you didn't want to self-host and deal with all that nightmare. Um, You wanted to go into the cloud and have a system that dealt with that for you because you're a fashion brand. You're not, you know, finance experts. Yeah, exactly. And it strikes me as the same thing with the not going headless is – you want something that works, that enables you to play to your strengths and to do the right thing for the brand. But you don't want to have to worry about all those extra layers.
2: Well, that's exactly right. And and the change and the updates and the upgrades to them and the knock-on effects of upgrading one element that breaks another. It, it the, the thing is, to leverage a SaaS product properly, really, I think you've got to get away from worrying about it working or not. And that that is almost the bottom line of us switching from Magento. We switch from oh, God, is Magento going to work this week or is there going to be an update or is something going to go wrong versus, right, we've got big commerce. If it goes wrong, it's their problem. We're going to spend that budget now on marketing and building the brand and getting reach and growing. And, and that's up to them to handle everything else, you know. And to a point we've, we've almost achieved that. To be realistic, we do have our middleware, which is a bespoke layer, And I think a site of any size is always gonna have that because there's so many integrations with so many different products and layers that you're never gonna get away from anything completely bespoke once you grow to a certain size because it's just the nature of the beast, if you like.
0: I'm glad you brought us back to that because one of the things it, it strikes me is, you know, you said, you know, the the Inc. was on the dotted line for the solution party you're going with in late 2019. And then it went live in 2021. And so much changed in that time, both even if we hadn't had the pandemic, the tech evolves and customer Mm. behavior evolves anyway. And then it all got accelerated. So do you think the kind of the future proofing, the future success is... And the, the, the most important thing to get right in the project was that middleware element, not what the front end looks like. That's relatively straightforward. But to get the integrations built in a way that gave you future adaptability. Definitely,
2: because they, a re-platforming also is a chance to have a drains up, isn't it? And you reveal all the frustrations of your integrations that have happened over time because organically things grow you introduce new payment methods new payment providers you sell through new channels they need erp integration updates etc and you know in, in the rush to get things to market quickly you you have a minimal viable approach like most people do you get it working you're happy with it there's the odd annoyance but it works and you're trading and you're generating revenue Replatform is a chance to say right enough's enough how would we approach this to get it perfect and that that was one of the things that we've done with um, with that middleware, is really doubled down our efforts on that ERP integration. And we had bespoke elements added into the the ERP's API layer to better facilitate processes. And we've come up with such a robust integration there. I mean, uh, for... Without naming names, etc., cetera, our ERP powers all of our downstream elements, really. So once an order is placed on our e-commerce platform, it's dropped into the ERP system, which then handles pick, pack, dispatch, fulfillment, the lot, really, integration with carriers, well, with Scurry, which then integrates with carriers, et etc. et cetera. So getting it right at that point is critical and you think well that sounds easy you just post an order into the system and you're like yeah that would be easy if you were selling in one currency and you didn't need different invoice formats with tariff codes and weights information and everything else to export now even to Europe etc so it's a lovely machine now it's all working I guess the real test will come when we start to do any major change in future and look at what happens there but I'm pretty confident no matter what happens the platform in big commerce has got enough of a wide schema within its API layer that it's more a case of how long it's going to take and how we do it rather than can it be done or not if you know
0: yeah, I know exactly what you mean, and I think I want to flip on to what do you what you know what what are the next big projects, but before we do that, are there any key tips you want to share of getting it to live that you'd like to give the audience for those who are going through a a similar build project anything you wish you'd done differently anything um, you're really pleased you did from the signing on the dotted line to the way we've got a new site (laughs) moment um
2: well that's a tough one because it was such a drawn-out project with the delays with with the covid pause if you like in the middle of it i guess really in that project i just wish we'd had more face-to-face time with vendors actually Because everyone's working from home through COVID and a lot of people still are now. And actually, so many conversations or processes were probably drawn out that would have been resolved in a five-minute conversation. Mm -hmm. And I just think when I looked at it, there were 11 vendors involved in the replatforming project because of all the different integration layers. So it's a pretty major piece of work, really. Even once we're on a SaaS platform, it's still not a case of, Oh, here's the web company. Ring them up, and we've got a website next week. You know, there's it's a it's pretty um, heavy lifting in terms of architecture. I mean, you still see, but you can't see because it's an audio-only podcast. But um, the wall behind <laughs> I me is, can see. is full of spider diagrams of data flows and logical decision steps, etc.
0: But that is one of those things which sometimes, especially when it comes to the integrations and solving, why isn't that working? why isn't this working? Sometimes you just need the relevant brains round a table mm-hmm. and a big old whiteboard, yep, or on some post-it notes.
2: The devil's in the detail, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And And because you've got to think, you know it, it can can be down to one wrong variable in an API post, which, is the difference between a successful export order being created versus domestic, and someone getting the wrong invoice template, so etc. It's, it's not a, a simple business when you're trading globally, really.
0: Oh, so true. The hours I I spent in a previous life trying to work out whether the zero or the one meant subscribed or unsubscribed <laughs> for various different different yeah. criteria.
2: Yeah, every vendor's got their own uh, way of handling a boolean yeah. result, haven't they? So it's uh,
0: oh yeah
2: yeah fun and game.
0: Anyway. Let's, I said we were going to flip onto the future stuff. Now, your site finally went live in August. We are talking about this in November. Yes, everyone. Ash agreed to give up time in November <laughs> to talk to us all about this. This is going live from C in January by which point I suspect you'll be hitting the green light on some of those projects that over the build, extended build period, you've been like, I wanna do that, but I'm (laughs) just gonna let the site go live. Then we'll deal with Q4, and then Um, we'll do the next phase. So what's got you excited about the new possibilities of the platform for 2022?
2: Um, Click rate optimization and conversion optimization now, because we use shogun for a lot of the cms of static content and even just the way big commerce built is going to allow us to react so much quicker so as soon as we start noticing pain points pinch points dropouts of any kind of large percentage between funnel steps within our checkout flow we can act on them and uh yeah, I feel like that was one of the bits that was frustrating before with Magento because it was a bit more structured in that way. Especially Magento One. Bear in mind, we were we were behind the curve, so it's not fair to say that it's all Magento's fault. It's it was the scenario and how it played out, and we weren't enterprise either. We were, we were open source Magento, so you know there was making structural changes to checkout flows or anything involved quite a lot of investment in time and money in dev time to actually make them. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to having almost like that CMS-based layer now of being able to spot problems, fix problems, monitor change, if you like, and that whole cyclical process of spot, review, fix, spot, review, fix, kicking in, and, and really optimizing on, on the traffic we've already got, because it's like anything, really. We, we've got enough traffic now that we could probably make quite a big dent on improving our sales without actually generating any more traffic
0: it's a nice position to be in
2: yeah it's just a case of converting more of the existing and um i mean obviously we're always going to want more traffic but it's nice to be at a point where you think actually you know a five percent shift here or or a three or four percent shift here is six figure sums over a year so it's um yeah it, it is a nice position to be in and i hope that we can really start to leverage that as we go on
0: yeah, it's a six figure sum. And it's one of those ways in which you make all your marketing spend go a bit further in the future.
2: Yeah, totally. Every pound spent on paid search, social display, exactly, just goes a lot, lot further when it's converted properly, really.
0: Ash and I always talk for ages, and we talked for ages before we even hit play. And one of the things he was telling me he's really um excited about and intrigued by at the moment is the marketplaces trend, which is one I am nowhere near as deep into as Ash is. But it does seem like everyone's starting a marketplace at the moment. And I guess having the middleware system that you've now got in place means that should you want to take advantage of everyone now having a marketplace, you can quite quickly spin off the data yep. and then reintegrate, if it's a drop shipping marketplace or whatever, the, the, the content back in again.
2: Yeah, exactly that. So I, I get it. I mean, I guess COVID's hit the world and people are thinking, man, we've we've got warehouses full of stock. How do we not have that in future? Well, we don't hold the stock. We leave the stock with the brand and we just become a channel to market. And makes sense really, doesn't it? If you... If you can maybe earn a slightly lower margin but a much bigger volume, um,
0: with none of the risk, with none
2: of the risk, no, and 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 axe the cost of warehousing, dispatch, fulfilment, returns, etc. Why would you not? And um, it's almost at the point where retailers are becoming channels and brands in their own right, known for their selections rather than for availability of stock, etc. So. I mean, ultimately, you have to be where the, where the consumers are, don't you, really? For any, any retail business, it's, it's sort of like you've just opened a, a website maybe as you're a startup and you've got your new business and you think, wow, I've got this website and I'm going to make loads of money. Well, no, you've actually just opened the smallest shop on the biggest, most busiest high street in the globe. <laughs> and And you don't even have a neon flashing light outside to say we're now open. So you've got to – sometimes it can be a lot cheaper and faster to grow – by adopting a marketplace model or or a third party listing type model than trying to fight against them and and take customers from your Amazons or Zalando or someone like that when when actually you could just list list with them and and be in the mix and get the reach and then if you're telling your brand stories properly then obviously the hope is the repeat customers come direct to you and you've given them a service and they feel close to your brand and they feel like you know them and you understand them and it's a bit more personalized and and, and you go from there. But, yeah, I can definitely see the trend. I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic time to be a brand at the minute because DTC is getting easier and easier and consumers are open to buying from brands more and more and more and I just think it's a, such a fantastic opportunity to, to grow direct sales now um there's risks obviously because you you talk you mentioned the risks there of the stock with a marketplace that's now on us you know that's that's not a uh, retailer x's warehouse full of hundreds of pairs of grants and shoes that they've got to take the, the punt on whether they sell or not that's now on us on our manufacturing how much do we produce for demand which styles are going to be the hits which aren't there's there's less of a if you haven't got as much of a traditional wholesale model, you don't have buyers coming in seasons in advance predicting trends and giving you a bit of an insight into what they're buying to make you think, right, we need to double down on our, our production on these styles or, or whatnot. So there's there's definitely changes. But again, it's just so nice to actually be in a position where you think, well, yeah, if we need to just spin up with a, 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 a new channel, it's weeks or a month at most, rather than this full drawn out, oh man, how do we integrate this? We've got to go and find a new vendor that can do data aggregation and blah, 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 and go to tender. And it's it's yeah, it's just lovely being in that position, really.
0: Yeah, it gives you the choice of going which marketplaces do we want to become a part of, not yeah, can we become a part of any marketplace? But the point I'd like to make to everyone listening is it's really important to make sure you're on the right marketplaces because you know, you guys at Grenson you're a luxury fashion brand that shouldn't be everywhere, quite frankly, and it would erode the brand, whereas being on certain marketplaces enhances the brand.
2: Definitely. And it's basically that, that wholesale model, really. I mean, obviously, being in the right stores in years gone by has been a great marketing channel for us because if you're in america and you're walking into a neiman marcus or a nordstrom or you're in the uk and you're walking into a selfridges or or you're looking online at mr Porto or whatever and you're seeing grenson it's almost like social proof isn't it it's validation Mm. that it's a real brand and it's good because these people sell other brands i like so they're there but that that is shifting definitely and and I think the marketplace model is interesting because I guess there's some of them where they come at it as though they need brands because they need to generate turnover. And then there's others that probably aren't quite there yet where brands need to think, do I need them? And I guess that will be really interesting over the next few years to see who else makes the shift into a marketplace model versus uh, a traditional sort of stockholding retailer. And also who makes a success of it because there's a whole new infrastructure and a whole new business model. And just because you were great at selling box product doesn't mean that you can migrate as well if your brands that you choose to deal with aren't as good as fulfillment or you end up having to hold stock for them.
0: Well, I I think there's a third one in there as well, which is watching especially for, for a brand like yourselves at the luxury end or in, in a specific niche where you need to watch the marketplaces you're selling on to make sure they don't become, you know, they don't take the Amazon route of we'll take everybody. And, <laughs> yeah, and it becomes a, a mess and no longer a a good fit for the brand. Therefore, that benefit is is eroded.
2: Yeah, and there's, there's a lot of mechanics behind it. I mean, you want to almost vet these marketplaces because even though they may be really popular and successful, if it turns out that their their customer service is really poor or their returns management or something like that or post purchase, any element of it is poor, that that reflects on us. I mean, we do have it now from time to time. Our customer services teams get, oh, I bought this from X, Y, Z. I'm not really happy with what they've told me, so I'm coming to you. And you think, well, your contract of sale is not with us, so we can help you. But, yeah, it's, it's just awkward, and you, you just don't really – want to create more of that really you want to know that the people you're dealing with have got the integrity to fulfill as you would to your customers directly because it's an extension of your brand really isn't it
0: it is and it it, again i come back to the you know the point you made about we're a fashion brand therefore we don't want to be dealing with hosting and we don't want to be dealing with this it's also if you've gone to all that effort as you you went to great effort to make all the integrations work to avoid the anomaly things that have to be manually dealt with. You don't want the anomaly customer calling up because the people you're partnering with have let you down. Have let you down. Because mm. it creates the same problem just in a in an audio world rather than a, an API world. But there's one thing which I I do want us to highlight before we move into the top tips, which is we are now on e-commerce master plan taking our kind of growth for good e-commerce sustainability angle. And there's something you guys do, which is really cool which is around helping people keep their grunts and shoes working mm. forever longer which is obviously one of the key things we all need to do is use our products for longer and throw them out less often so tell us a little bit about about how core cool that is to the brand
2: i think it's going to become more it's actually a service we've offered for a long time um but i think as you say it's become more and more prevalent in people's minds now about getting we're back we're almost heading back into that um Mend and repair rather than replace mindset, which is fantastic. And yeah, because of the way our shoes are constructed, they can be sent back to the factory here and resold probably around three or four times before you get to the point where there's pretty much not not enough material left to stitch another sole onto, if you like.
0: Because <laughs> yeah, we're we're not talking about um, you know if you go down the high street or the mall and you go to the the stall and they slap another sole on the bottom. We're talking about literally resewing yeah. isn't it
2: so basically your shoes will come back they'll go there's there's a thing called a last which is basically uh, uh, the shape of a foot is the inside of the of the shoe and it determines the sort of whip fit and toe shape um instep and all that sort of stuff and and um each shoe is made on its own own last so we'll put your shoes on the last pattern that they were actually made on remove the sole completely but we actually keep your insoles so even though you'll get a brand new outer sole on your shoes, they still will fit like your old shoes did because they're molded to your feet where you might have worn them for a number of years, et cetera. So, yeah, it's a fantastic service, really, and it, and it applies across the range. So we can do it with the sneakers, uh, the more formal shoes, obviously boots as well, and I believe we can do it even with some of the vegan products too. So we have vegan products in the range that are, are made from non-animal product Um, they're vegan society certified so yeah even as they start to wear down it's not a case of of replacing them they can be sent back and looked at too so it's a it's a fantastic service and one that we're actually trying to look to build on online and and digitally and how can we make it easier for the customer to get shoes back to us securely without being damaged or lost in transit etc and our factory to turn them around I mean I guess that's the beauty of having your own manufacturing really is that that you can leverage things like that we're not we're not reliant on any sort of third parties
1: e-commerce master plan is supported by some of the greatest companies in the e-commerce sector here's a reminder of who they are
0: to sell successfully on Amazon and or Walmart, you need to be optimising everything. Your ads, your products, including the ones you're planning on launching, your SEO, product availability and your product pages. At the heart of all successful optimization is the right data. You need the numbers on what your products are doing, what's happening in your product categories and what your competitors are up to across PPC, SEO and sales. Without all of that, you are flying blind and missing opportunities. Oh, and don't forget you need it for all the Amazon regions you're selling in. Basically, your marketplace success is all about the data you have and how well you use it. That's why you need to try out DataHawk. They'll provide you with all the data you need and help you analyse it to make the right decisions about how to grow your sales. Try DataHawk today, the number one FBA seller software and e-commerce analytics platform for sellers, vendors and agencies. You'll get it for 14 days free and unlimited trial. Go to datahawk.co forward slash That's D-A-T-A-H-A-W-K dot C-O slash masterplan to start your free account. Do you, like me, have a bit of a software tools habit? Well, I love a good tool and the impact it can have on my business. For me, a good tool is one that solves a problem we have, that can save me and my team time, that improves performance and where the price is 100% worth it. That's why I've always got an eye on the latest tools to appear on AppSumo. Not heard of it? AppSumo is a site where you can buy key software tools for your business once and own them Forever. For example, we use a tool I bought from AppSumo in 2020 for $49 to schedule all our Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook posts. In fact, whilst creating and promoting this very episode, me and the team will have used at least 10 tools I've bought from AppSumo. I'm a big fan. So go on, check out what's on offer right now by going to ecmp.info forward slash AppSumo. That's ecmp.info slash appsumo. And I bet you'll find a brilliant solution for at least one of your problems. Go to ecmp.info forward slash appsumo.
1: It's time for the Top Tips Round.
0: Okay. I love this section because it gives me and our listeners some really quick ideas for taking our businesses to the next level. So Ash, are you ready for the top tips?
2: <laughs> well, I don't know how top my tips would be, but yeah, let's <laughs> let's go for it. <laughs> well,
0: they've been pretty top so far. Trust me. Um, okay. The book top tip. If everyone listening to this podcast agreed to take Friday off and read a book to make their business better, which book would you recommend?
2: It's a slightly older book, but I found it amazing to to read. It's called Webs of Influence by Natalie Nahai, I think is how you pronounce her name. And it's all around the psychology of online persuasion. So it's a real nice read into why we decide to do what we do when we're looking at content and interacting with a website online. And and obviously you know it's not all about the the conversion of a sale sometimes it's a micro or macro conversion of a mailing list sign up or using a category filter or or something else so it's it's i found it took some of what i knew and assumed and either set it straight or blew me totally out of the water and just made me think about things in a slightly different light for when you're building pages and and looking at, at things and um Yeah, I think it's just an interesting one to have in your back pocket, if you like, once you've read it, because it's the biggest challenge to all of us, isn't it? Making someone buy at the end of the day. It's Mm -hmm. e-commerce's biggest problem. How do you get someone to press add to cart and more importantly, hand over the hard-earned money to you?
0: Anything which helps with that in the right way, we are more than up for. Um, (laughs) Okay, the traffic top tip. Which marketing method do you either prize above all others or think doesn't get the press it deserves? Uh,
2: For me personally, it's probably a bit of a a guilty pleasure and indulging myself, but I still am a massive fan of on-page SEO and organic channels, really. I think it's just such a broad – well, I guess it's such a leveller in a way because if you get it right and relevant to you, to what you're doing, you can rank against Amazon and eBay if you do it right we do you know there's little old grenson above high street majors and uh, i just find that amazing that you know we we do that all in-house we don't use agencies for it and it's just it's just fantastic i think i've i've learned that over years through experience and learning from good people that do it and to be fair and using external uh, agencies in the past and picking up tips and stuff and I get the idea of going straight for paid uh, for, for, you know, super funded businesses that have got investor funding and, and they need business now. So they go straight for that paid model and drive volume. But I definitely think it's a tactic that's underplayed really because people just think straight to that paid option. It's neglected, I guess is the right word.
0: Nice, I like it. Um, the tool top tip: maybe a collaboration tool, a social media plugin, a phone app, or just a way of working. Is there a cool little tool you use that makes you and your team more efficient from day to day?
2: Um, I guess the main one that that we use for a lot of our research is Semrush. It's um, I guess some people would would market it as uh, an SEO marketing research platform, but actually. It covers so much more because it's great for competitor analysis. It's great for technical audits and crawls of the site. It's not massively expensive when you look at the annual price compared to some of its competitors. And it takes data from so many sources for when you're looking at keyword research and – you know, especially in fashion, we've got two seasons a year. So we're in, in essence, almost having a new catalog twice a year. So when we're looking to put those title tags together on categories and product pages, et cetera, it's, it's invaluable really.
0: Excellent tip. Okay. The growth top tip. If you met someone today who's focused on growing their e-commerce business from 100 orders per month to 1,000, what would be your number one tip for them?
2: Uh, I guess it probably reiterate something we've we've already said but I would say take a step back and actually look at where your customers are and what's the most cost effective way of getting to them so if they turn around and say we're getting 100 orders a month but we're spending xyz on advertising my my first thing would be straight away is is there a channel or marketplace that would cost you less than that and probably grow your reach massively and could you afford to do that and your paid efforts at the same time to see what you can do? Because I still think people maybe don't always think about where where people spend a lot of their time. And People go, oh, social media, we'll advertise on, on social media. And you think, yeah, but as time's going on, more and more people aren't in a purchasing frame of mind when they're using social media. So it might not always be the silver bullet that people think it is. Whereas some of these sort of price comparison sites or marketplaces in their traditional format i mean you can't get anything purer than price comparison really because people are there to buy (laughs) that's all they're Mm -hmm. there to do yeah there's very little content apart from the odd bug article they're there to find the product so that would be my tip get in front of people's eyes as easily as you can and and be prepared to think outside the box on it rather than the standard models or just accepting the standard sort of spiel you get from some agencies that will just try and hard sell you on their their paid SEO or their paid search tactics and how they can make you the the, the most popular business in the world. Just just do a little bit of your own homework on it and I think you'll stand strong in then, If you manage to get to 100 orders a month, you're obviously doing something right.
0: I love that. Ash, thank you so much. Before we say goodbye, could you please let the listeners know where they can find you and your business on the web and social media, please?
2: Yeah, it's very simple. Grenson.com is our our global domain. And then, yeah, it's uh, Grenson Shoes on Facebook and Instagram. So, we're there. Come and find
0: us. Excellent. Thanks, Ash. And uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast and for being so open, talking through those tough decisions that I know a lot of businesses are dealing with around updating their tech stack and making decisions around headless and dealing with all the APIs and the integrations. I'm sure we've helped a lot of people. So thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. So there you have it. Some of the ins and outs and things to consider if you're going through that re-platforming, re-updating your tech stack to get it fit for whatever is coming in uh, 2022 and beyond. Um, And I think that marketplaces trend is one. I think we'll be exploring, we've already been exploring, but we're exploring here on the podcast to see just what format those are taking and the some of the opportunities that are out there for you. but the key thing is to make sure you're on the right ones, of course and that it all works nice and seamlessly for you. And I love the way in which with a, an expensive shoe product they are enabling their customers to have that product fully repaired or rebuilt as they frame it up on the website to extend the life of that product so as it's therefore creating less or making better uses I suppose of the earth's resources. So even the businesses you wouldn't expect have that sustainability element in them. Now, when we finish recording, um, Ash offered to, if anyone wants to have a chat with him about their replatforming processes or anything else we discussed about, you can get hold of him via his LinkedIn profile. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes on the website. Talking of the show notes on the website, you can get your hands on those which have the notes from today's show, including our top tips, links to what we've mentioned, and Ash's LinkedIn profile. Go to ecommercemasterplan.com forward slash podcast. There you can also add yourself to our email list so you don't miss out on many of the other things I share to help you improve your business. Now, amongst the things that those on our email list get our notifications as episodes go live and details of the webinar I'm going to be hosting to round off our January growth series, where I'll be sharing my take on where you should focus for maximum impact in 2022. The January growth series continues on Thursday with our second experts mashup episode. Our experts will be sharing their top tip for e-commerce success in 2022. And if you don't want to miss it, make sure you followed and subscribe to us where you are listening, thank you for tuning in to the Ecommerce Master Plan podcast. I bring you a new interview every single episode because I'm trying to inspire and help e-commerce business owners like you to succeed and thrive with their business despite all the challenges you're currently dealing with. Both to make your business more successful and to turn it into a force for good for our planet. If you know someone this show can help, please tell them to listen to the Ecommerce Master Plan podcast. I hope you have a brilliant week and. Never, never 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 forget to keep optimizing.
1: Thank you for listening to the E-commerce Masterplan podcast. Find out more at ecommercemasterplan.com/podcast.
0: Recharge is the leading subscription management solution helping e-commerce merchants of all sizes launch and scale subscription offerings. Over 15,000 merchants use subscriptions powered by Recharge to grow their business and their communities by increasing average order value, reducing churn and providing predictable recurring revenue. Turn transactions into relationships and experience seamless subscription commerce with Recharge. Check them out at rechargepayments.com forward slash masterplan.